In all of my experience thus far as a technologist, you know, call it the past 20 years, I've seen major changes happen on the order of usually like six to 12 months and often taking years to really iterate and get good. The advancements of these AI technologies is happening on the order of weeks. I've never seen anything like it. Hi, I'm Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. Matt Mullenweg started out as a jazz saxophonist, and he went on to create WordPress, which is the platform behind an astonishing 42% of the websites in the world. That's just incredible. We chat with Matt about his journey from musician to developer to entrepreneur, his perspective on distributed work. He has some deep thoughts about this and his thoughts on the transformative capabilities of the latest generation of general artificial intelligence. We also come back to Matt's roots in jazz and his continued love for music and musicians. One more quick thing before we get to the show. You can get episodes a week early if you subscribe on Substack. Just head on over to dbtr.co slash Substack to sign up for free. That's dbtr.co slash Substack. Thank you for subscribing and for listening. Before we get to the show, a few words from our sponsors. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto is also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers, inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural. And now with the Intelligent Canvas, allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com. This episode is brought to you by Fable, who make it easy to build accessible, inclusive products. Learn more at makeitfable.com and later on in the show. Matt Mullenweg, thank you for joining us on Design Better. It's really my pleasure. So thank you for having me. Matt, uh, you're doing interesting things and you've always done interesting things, it seems, in your entire life, as much as we can see of your public life. You started out, though, in a strange place that you're a jazz saxophonist and you went to college to study jazz. How did you get from jazz musician to CEO of a major company? <laughs> Lots of steps in between, obviously. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I did start playing saxophone in elementary and Houston, where I grew up. She has really amazing jazz scene. It's not well known, particularly on the education side. There's a lot of the top musicians in the city spend time teaching younger folks to play. And so I was really blessed with a series of fantastic teachers. Ended up going to a high school that was dedicated to uh, the arts, kind of like a fame school. So had no gym, no sports, no anything. But we'd yeah. spend three to four hours a day on our art area. And it was a very small school, like 400 something people. So there was a lot of interdisciplinary exposure. I focused on jazz, but I was also forced to do classical. I had a lot of friends in theater, 
So sometimes I play in like the sort of uh, pit band for like a musical, end up learning a couple of different instruments. I had friends that were dancers or artists. So like there was just a lot of exposure to this different forms of arts and also some great alumni that would return back. So for example, well, famously, probably Beyonce is probably the most famous <laughs> alumni. Mm. And I think Kelly Rowland's one of the others, Destiny Rowland. <laughs> but also like, you know, the most recent Grammys, R&B album of the year was Robert Glasper, who was a jazz pianist. When I graduated in college, I didn't stay with music. So I decided to actually study political science. But a lot of my income came from playing. That's kind of how I paid my rent. And those other musicians were also the people to first hire me. So I kind of had started like a computer building slash web design company. (laughs) And the first people that hired me were like some of my teachers or other musicians. And often I'd barter for like lessons or other things for building them a computer or something like that. So that was how I got into it. Yeah, I guess just from a young age also just was always kind of hustling is not the best word, but in hindsight, you could describe it as that. Like I just... Whatever people would pay me for, I'd make a business around or sign up for and often just try to figure it out later. <laughs> like, sure, I'll build you a website. It's like, next thing I know, like, how do you build websites? <laughs> I'm using front page and Dreamweaver and like just really trying to learn basically from the internet and from bulletin boards and also online forums. What's it called? Not SitePoint, site I think was one that I was active oh, yeah. on. Reading Jeffrey Zeldman's sites, you know, following a lot of the blogs at the time was basically my education. And of course, this was a time when, although it's early in hindsight in the internet, there was already sort of a Cambrian explosion of materials online, mm-hmm. including full books or, you know, online yeah. encyclopedias like Encarta from Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, libraries were being, catalog cards were being digitized. So really, at the first period, for me at least, when you're only limited by your drive and imagine and curiosity, not really by access to like a particular university or teacher. Through the course of that, I'm, I'm curious at what point WordPress actually started. And then maybe we can walk us into the present because last one of the interviews I was listening to with you is maybe about a decade ago with Tim Ferriss. And at that point, you were saying that around 20-ish percent of the web was built on WordPress. Fast forward to now, and it's like 42%. You know, holy cow, that's crazy. How did you get here from there? So like I mentioned, I was really learning a lot, particularly by participating in online forums whether that was news groups or BBSs or using early forum software. <laughs> and the equivalent of GitHub at that time was this site called SourceForge, which is where it was kind of like a code repository and bug tracker and everything else for open source projects, much like GitHub is today. So, you know, I was learning so much from blogs, I decided to start my own. <laughs> and I went through some of the different dominant software at the time, which was Movable Type or live journal, blogger, I was basically trying them all out. Eventually ended up on something called B2, which was pretty early at the time, but it was written in PHP, which was my favorite language, maybe still my favorite language, <laughs> and was fully open source. So it was under what's called the GPL license, where some of these other things like movable type were quite good, but they weren't open source. They were under proprietary licenses. And so at this time, I'd already become radicalized to believe that like open source software was very important and what I wanted to spend all my time and development effort on. So I just began contributing to B2. It was one of these things where, again, total amateur, knew nothing. But eventually, after my 20th time visiting the forum, I saw someone else ask a question that I already knew the answer to. And so, you know, 
you learn some, you always give back. So as part of giving back, I started to answer other people's questions. And that led to writing code to help people, which led to contributing to B2. Sort of the interesting twist in the story was that B2 was really driven by a single developer. And he disappeared just without any messages or anything. And so the community, which I was part of at the time, wasn't sure exactly what to do. I posted about this to my blog. And one of the other contributors, a guy named Mike Little, who lived in the UK, left a comment saying, hey, I was basically saying like, hey, you know, B2 is not developed anymore. What do we do? Maybe we can take something, continue the B2 code base with, you know, the best parts of these other systems, like text pattern, which is done by Dean Allen, removal type, other things. And he said, yeah, if you want to do that, I want to work with you. And so we just started collaborating together from across the Atlantic Ocean, me and Houston, Again, a kid, as <laughs> like a freshman in college, no real qualifications. Him is like a real developer. You know, he was a professional developer at that point. But I had a lot of time <laughs> on my hands. You know, youth is blessed with the gift of, of a lot of time. We eventually started calling that WordPress and we did our first release. Later, I forget the exact timeline, but maybe a few months later, Michelle, who had developed B2, kind of returned. You know, he had just gone through some personal stuff. That's why he kind of logged off for a little while. He didn't really want to work on B2 as much anymore. And, you know, we were what was called a fork of B2, meaning we had taken the existing code base and started developing on top of it, which is something you're allowed and encouraged to do in open source. There were four or five other forks, so four or five other projects that had kind of done the same, like groups of developers and individuals. And Michelle looked at all those and said, hey, this WordPress thing seems like the best. So this is now the official continuation. So we were kind of blessed as the official successor to B2, which again, also started to bring over some people. To how that led to <laughs> the success that WordPress has had, there's not a single thing I can point to except being extremely responsive to our customers and community. You know? <laughs> and also something else I think is different from WordPress about most software projects is that it really is community developed. Even though I have a company which contributes a lot to WordPress, we're typically only like 10% of the contributions. So 90% is coming from either other companies or other volunteers. And that sort of community-driven development, when it's done right, I think creates uh, very responsive and agile products and also just allows us to move faster. You know, our proprietary competitors, like a Wix or Squarespace, might have 500 or even 1,000 engineers doing R&D to develop their system. But it's no match for the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> that develop WordPress and plugins and themes and everything. So just over time, assuming again you're, you're being responsive and iterating well, you're just going to develop something better. Much like the Wikipedia, when it launched, was much worse than Encarta or Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> like it was measurably way worse. But then over time, <laughs> it got better and better and better and better. And that's the same thing that happens with open source and why I think open source is somewhat inevitable to you know, dominate every area that it enters. Maybe we could dig into that philosophy a little bit further because some might categorize it as a compromise that comes with that open source, many contributors that things can get a little messy. You know, There's a lot of different contributions and is there like a grand vision that's uniting all of it? But somehow that does happen with WordPress where things hold together into like the sum being greater of all of its parts. And then there's kind of the closed ecosystem, as you described, you know, a Wix or a Squarespace, where it's like, it can be perfectly controlled, but 
its pace of iteration is very limited. Could you just maybe unpack those philosophies? Like there's two different directions. You talked about being indoctrinated into open source, that that was something that you believed in very deeply. But as you think about this from a commercial perspective, how do you decide to take a right turn instead of a left turn? And what were the concerns that emerged from that open source philosophy? Yeah, this is an interesting question because people have a really hard time imagining how a chaotic open developed system can outcompete sort of like a top-down design system. So perhaps to be instructive, it might be good to zoom out from products or software to just some other, you know, top-down economy or control system. Human progress is incredibly chaotic and includes <laughs> <laughs> you know, thousands of uncorded actors with some common goal or even better yet, operating through their own self-interest, aligned in a way that benefits human progress. A great quote to illustrate this is actually from Adam Smith and uh, The Wealth of Nations from 1776, so around the time America was started. And he said, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Okay. Now, we've seen this work now over past 400 years of human development. <laughs> In cases, even one with a lot of really good intentions, we've tried to create economies that were kind of top-down or controlled by a single entity or group of people, a Politburo, whatever it might be. Um, that just hasn't been as effective even though theoretically, I am also drawn to those models, right? It's, it just makes a lot of sense, but in practice, it just hasn't worked. So think of a healthy open source ecosystem as being an ecosystem that is much like an open free market. So now when you look at WordPress and say, okay, it's a little bit chaotic, it's sometimes not as organized. Sometimes our first versions are really you know, junky <laughs> and we have to iterate our way to something that's good. But it's really driven by common philosophy, a common set of beliefs in our ecosystem or country. That's a philosophy around the freedom imbued in open source software being really important. It's a, a desire for user control, you know, and including privacy and customizability, something really key to our tenants. And, you know, some cultural stuff. We're really in the jazz. <laughs> so we name one of releases after jazz. We have to talk about code as poetry, so we're always trying to refactor our code to be more beautiful, but pragmatic in that what matters to us more than anything is not beautiful code, but a beautiful user experience. And that not just how nice a button looks or how good a single interface is, but the entire totality of that user experience, including how easy is it to find a developer? How well does your site index by Google? <laughs> how easy is it to like you know, customize your site by installing a theme or plugin. Like those types of things aren't necessarily captured if you were just put a screenshot of Squarespace and a screenshot of WordPress side by side. But those are the things we obsess over. What are the long-term incentives, not just over the following year, but the following 10 or 20 years of the community we're trying to build? And so to the extent we've been successful, I think it's that we take a very long-term view, a view really informed by political science and macroeconomics, which are two of my other passions, and just making a ton of mistakes, <laughs> but always coming back and trying again. So I guess a persistence. We haven't given up over many, many, now two decades of doing this. We turned 20 this year. And honestly, I personally tend to work on WordPress 
the rest of my life, you know, as long as I'm intellectually and physically able to, I plan to keep working on this mission to democratize publishing. Looking forward to doing so alongside hopefully some of the current people that also do it, but perhaps also new generations that want to contribute and be part of this mission. This is a fascinating philosophical approach to a product, to a way of building, to a way of building a company. And I wonder if we could maybe unpack that a little bit more, because I don't think a lot of business leaders think the way that you're thinking. You know, you're describing it as basically connecting a lot of what seem like disconnected concepts, but ultimately they inform one another. And there's a thread in your personal growth as someone who studied music, which feels a world away from being a developer and you know building computers for people and then ultimately building companies. But these things are connected. Could you just share a little bit about how you think about the world and systems? Because it seems different and unique. Thank you. I would actually disagree that not many businesses are run this way. I think that if you look at businesses that have gotten to scale or been at the top of the totem pole, so competitive in an open market for decades, you'd be hard-pressed to find one that doesn't think in larger systems, economies, and standards. And so even when I've never met, you know, like I've never met Bill Gates or something like that, I've studied Microsoft deeply because look at what they did over the 80s and 90s. Wow, so much to learn from there. They created one of the first true computing platforms and did it like (laughs) somehow behind the back of IBM, like the other dominant companies at the time. I think it's also good to study what happened to them in the early 2000s. And today we're getting another masterclass from the same company, Microsoft, (laughs) on succession planning, you know, with uh, Satya Nadella there the performance that he's had over his tenure, and also just how they're making Google dance, as he said, <laughs> with their investment in OpenAI, ChatGPT, all these sorts of things are quite interesting and in bringing back things people assume to be dead, like you know, Internet Explorer and it's now called Edge and you know, Bing are now part of the conversation again. If you dive into that story, you get a little bit behind the scenes and see that, oh, wow, Reed Hoffman, was at the center of a lot of this, at the center of you know, social network creation, at the you know, board of OpenAI, you know, created LinkedIn, obviously, which then sold to Microsoft. He joins the board of Microsoft. Like, okay, who's this Forrest Gump-like character behind the scenes? <laughs> and check out his podcast and check out his writings. And so I think that there's so much to study from. And if there's anything that I learned at HSPVA and in that arts high school, It's that studying areas outside your own is a great place for inspiration and also that there's something to learn from almost everything, including things you strongly disagree with or, you know, have a negative reaction to. For example, I love Apple and Apple products and, you know, think how for a long time they wouldn't allow you to set defaults or install apps and everyone was jailbreaking their phones, things like that. Like, so that was also, I think, informative in terms of, you know, even giving their position <laughs> and their incredible powers. And, you know, at one point, they were the most valuable company in the world, trillions of dollars, more cash on their balance sheet than most countries. <laughs> and yet they're still kind of behaving in like an underdog way that to me feels kind of consumer hostile. I get if they were, you know, early 2000s and about to go out of business again, why they might behave that way. But 
from the point of view of their market position, it feels like they, in my opinion, should move with a different level of grace and sort of a responsibility to their position in the market. They've been rewarded by consumers with an incredible position. And now I feel like they have a bit of a duty to also give back to those same consumers. Matt, a few minutes ago, you were talking a little bit about you know the potential future for WordPress and bringing in new people. And then you also touched on open AI. And I'm curious about your perspective of this sort of interface of these new technologies, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And then, you know, people that are kind of growing up with these technologies, what's it going to look like in the next few years as these become more commonplace and more powerful? I think it's interesting to look at what's been truly society changing technology of the past 20 years. And also where we maybe had some detours that got a lot of hype, but weren't as useful. So when I look at the current chat interfaces to AI, I think the easiest line to draw to is what's been the most successful AI of the past 20 years, which is Google search engine, which you could ask it anything you like. You could structure the queries as words or sentences, and its interface in returning it back was a list of links. And more recently, also providing some answers at the top of that, you know, that little box that sometimes answers things. They also created a whole ecosystem around webmasters and SEO and everything, which got millions of people around the world creating answers for them, <laughs> optimizing it so that the Googlebot can read these easier. <laughs> and then they were kind of giving them a little cut. You know, they'd send some traffic to the website, which, by the way, was probably running Google Analytics <laughs> and Google AdSense. <laughs> so they were kind of making money in this distributed ecosystem in a way that was very, very successful for a while. But then the incentives of this ecosystem kind of got warped. And so I'm sure a lot of us have experienced in the past few years a degrading quality of Google search results. One, around they are doing the thing that they said they would never do, which was have a lot of ads at the top. And in fact, on mobile now for certain search terms, especially related to WordPress, because those terms are very valuable, you only see ads. The organic results are not visible. Second, those ads look just like the organic results more and more every year. They used to have different color backgrounds and everything. They've subtly evolved that UI to where, to an average consumer, at least when I've observed people do searches, they have no idea what's a paid result versus an organic one. And you know, there's kind of a fig leaf of respectability there where Google says, oh, it says sponsor there. And, you know, they can kind of get by it. But I think an actual user testing, <laughs> at least in my anecdotal experience, like people are not distinguishing their paid results versus organic. And then finally, even in the organic results, many of these websites are so driven to monetize that they create a really bad user experience with bad ads that are slow to load, pop-ups everywhere, or content, which was essentially a content farm generated to optimize for a Google search. And this isn't necessarily like the best organic, it's not like an expert like you or someone posting their answer to this question. It's like a website created by someone trying to optimize for Google. So the very system they created and the incentives therein ended up being the seeds of their downfall. <laughs> and that's often true, often contained in every success is a seed of the thing that will eventually make that success a failure if you don't change and adapt. So now look at the sidebar. I think the sidebar was these voice assistants and everyone created these smart speakers. Alexa was very, very popular. And we were told this would be a conversational interface. However, 
in the reality of how it was really used. And again, you could just go to your friend's house and watch how people use this. They were using it for very, very simple queries, like setting timers, alarms, and really playing music is at least what I observed. I'm sure Amazon has better data on this, but like, again, just go to your friend's house and, and ask them to use things and observe. And always try to have that like learning beginner's mindset and watching how people use things. And if you tried to do something more complex, it didn't work well. <laughs> also, because you didn't have really a screen. They started to add screens to these things, like the Echo devices started to get screens, which is really nice. You could kind of see what was playing or, or see answers to questions in a visual way. But that kind of like iterative conversation impression was not good. And it wasn't until ChatGPT, which to be honest, is not really new technology from an AI point of view, but was an interface <laughs> and openness, you know, it was free to everyone for anyone to try innovation unlocked, right? And inspired like an entire generation of things now being built around this. And they made the APIs open and they just lowered the prices by 10x. And like open AI is really nailing it on the execution in such amazing ways. And they raised funding in a way that allows them a competitive moat to be able to do it. You know, they just raised, I think, $10 billion. So they're, they're really executing on a number of areas, including business strategy, which I think is igniting this new ecosystem. Look at what else is happening now. There's like 500 other AI startups <laughs> which are getting funding because all the VCs are like, oh, wow, now we can pour money into something. And they, like, there's a lot of overcapitalization of, in the venture field right now. And so we're going to get like four out of that 500, there's going to be 450 <laughs> failures, <laughs> 40 that are probably like good home runs and 10 that are probably less, probably like one or two that maybe have an open AI level of success. But you know what? That's okay. <laughs> that's messy. That's chaotic. But it's also like how open markets should function. <laughs> and everyone doing that is doing it, you know, with open eyes. All the investors expect many of those things to fail. <laughs> the self-interest of all the entrepreneurs in that space is to succeed. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the system working. How do you think AI is potentially going to change the way that WordPress operates? It seems like there's just a myriad ways that it could make using WordPress, setting it up, publishing just much richer. In ways it's hard to articulate and that are massive. So, I mean, think of it because just like they say, like people don't want to drill, they want a hole in the wall. When people Google, they don't want a list of 20 links that they have to sort through. They want an answer. And these conversational AIs, even ChatGPT today, you can have it write WordPress plugins with code that works. <laughs> you can copy and paste it and execute it. You can ask it, like, what's the best theme? And there's already like a ton of startups that are doing something that essentially like creates an entire website just from a few conversational questions. And you pair that with like generative AIs around images and how all of a sudden you can have like really customized photography or easy editing of your current imagery. Like maybe you have a bunch of pictures, but they're not very high quality. You don't want them all in a certain illustration style. Again, things that, you know, I can't remember how many dozens of hours I spent like learning Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator. <laughs> and now with some of those same effects that I used to have to take long tutorials on and read like big site point, you know, articles on, now just being a single, you can ask the computer to do it and it magically happens. Wow. <laughs> Like, and that's, you know, WordPress has always been about the democratization of publishing. Since we started saying that, everyone and their mother has adopted the democratization <laughs> phrase <laughs> in ways that I don't think are really true to the intention. But 
I think this conversational AI is actually truly doing it because it is going to allow literally millions of people who are able to type a prompt to do things that used to require, you know, tens or more hundreds of hours of learning to be able to accomplish on your own. And to finish the analogy of Google search to these new, let's call ChatGPT, is just a, a standard example for all the conversational AIs. It's remarkable. Like all of us have probably gotten pretty good at crafting search terms. And this is a skill we didn't even realize we were doing. But you talk to anyone who's like good at the internet <laughs> and how we search is very different from how like a novice or less technical person uses Google. We know how to craft the queries, how to do site searches, how to remove certain terms from the results, how to scan through and go through results really quickly to find the right answer. This is a learned skill. No one's born with this, but we've all learned it. The same way I think that prompt engineering or asking the AI the right question, instructing it in the correct way is going to become a skill just like searching Google was a good skill. Because think about it, it's a computer interface. And we've evolved from command lines like on Linux, where you have to type certain specific commands, have specific argument orders, and pipe the results between different sets of commands. You know, I'm piping my grok to an NC command, and then piping that to like a file, which then I parse the script. Like, think of all those steps. Now, I'm able to command an AI, basically. I do think of these things as new intelligences to do the same thing. People who have run businesses or managed contractors are going to be naturally pretty good at this. Because if you've ever worked with someone else who you're directing their work, how you ask them what to do is actually really, really important to them being successful at accomplishing <laughs> the task. And I'm sure we've all experienced where like we hired a designer or a developer and we didn't ask them quite right how to do something or didn't clarify it. And you end up with a bad result and then you have to iterate and everything. It's the same way asking these AIs. And so a lot of people, we're starting to adopt AI a ton inside Automatic. And we've had developers that report that it's 3x their productivity. 3x. That's ridiculous. And these are good developers. And a lot of people who've tried it out are like, oh, I tried it and it just didn't work for me. Like it seemed kind of dumb. And I think that experience isn't driven by the AI being dumb. It's being driven by not asking it what to do properly and knowing what to do with those outputs and feeding them back in in a proper way and other things. So now, of course, as these technologies advance, you know, it should get easier and easier and better at guessing what you want to do or better at iterating on its own. Like right now, there's a, a limit to its responses. There's limits on like the Bing version of chat on how many questions you can ask before it resets. But all of that's going to evolve and go away. And the rate of change here, in all of my experience thus far as a technologist, you know, call it the past 20 years, I've seen major changes happen on the order of usually like six to 12 months and often taking years to really iterate and get good. You know, Google used to shift a major algorithm update kind of every 12 to 18 months, sometimes a little longer. WordPress does major releases, you know, every four months. Drupal will do a major release every two or three years. Squarespace kind of similar. Like, so there's like different cadences. The advancement of these AI technologies is happening on the order of weeks. I've never seen anything like it. And so as good as these things are, that's why I say it's hard to predict exactly the impact. The stuff that is going to launch this year <laughs> will blow your mind. If this current stuff hasn't already blown your mind, the stuff that's coming is not just a little bit better, but an order of magnitude. And so I would just encourage anyone listening to this to really spend time with these tools and play with them because it's potentially 
obsolete all of your current knowledge <laughs> of how to work with technology in the same way that being like the most amazing buggy whip maker wasn't useful for like working on cars. <laughs> There's perhaps some meta skills like learning or communication or other things which were transferable, but the actual kind of applied skills are completely different. And I would just encourage people to spend a lot of time with these new areas. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years, and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with Methodical Coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com and use our discount code DESIGNBETTER to get 10% off your first order of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. I've got two young kids who can be a little bit on the noisy side, so my wife and I have gotten used to using closed captions on those rare occasions when we get a chance to sit down and watch a show together. Lots of us have experienced the benefits of products that were initially designed for people with disabilities, from closed captions to dark mode on your phone or laptop to voice-to-text to electric toothbrushes. Designing products for all people, regardless of abilities, leads to greater adaptability, usability, customization, and personalization. With 1 billion people worldwide living with disabilities, Fable Engage helps UX teams collect feedback from people with disabilities to help you build more accessible products. Fable Upskill provides custom accessibility training for digital teams to gain skills to build inclusive products. The best digital teams like Shopify, Microsoft, and Spotify partner with Fable to make better products for everyone. We're big fans of Fable, and we know you will be too. Learn more by requesting a demo at www.makeitfable.com slash designbetter. That's 
www.makeitfable.com slash design better. You may have seen driverless cars around. Maybe you've even ridden in one yourself. The future is here with Cruise. Cruise is building an all-electric fleet of the world's most advanced self-driving vehicles to safely connect people to the things, people, and places that they care about the most. At Cruise, they're designing experiences that will set a new standard in transportation, tools that enable a safe, smooth ride, and a service that is making a positive impact, one community at a time. Here's the good news. Cruise is hiring. You want to join their collaborative team? Visit design.getcruise.com to learn more about how you can help design the future of transportation. Again, that's design.getcruise.com. Design.getcruise.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. Now, you seem to have a pretty optimistic take on where this is headed, and I think overall I do too, but you also read, you know, the potential for some darker things. And as these systems become more advanced and sort of more of a black box, how do you think we can prevent, you know, some of the the potential negatives like bias or just the machine itself having its own intent that maybe contradicts what we as humans want? Have you thought about that much? Uh, Yeah, it's called open source. (laughs) (laughs) So you you called it when you said this is could be a black box, or we can't really see how these things operate. I think open source, and open source has fast followed with things like stable diffusion. Again, things I expected to take years happen in months, which is wild. Now, the bigger problem isn't that we can't see how these things work. It's that we don't fully understand how they're evolving, including the top researchers at Google and OpenAI. We're seeing emergent behavior, for example, training something in one language, and it's somehow learning another language along the way without being trained for that. Wow. And even (laughs) the people developing these things don't really know. And there's actually a paper about this where, I forget which model it was, I think it was one of the Google ones. They found that it could answer things in Spanish with about a 15 decrease in accuracy, but it wasn't trained on Spanish at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it just picked it up from essentially in its own, how these systems work is they develop kind of a vector-based space for certain concepts. Part of what we don't fully understand, but what they seem to do is they put concepts near each other. And near is a relative term because it's essentially not spatial, but it's a good metaphor to think of it. Much like in the human mind, let's say the concept of a chair. You and I can look at things, different chairs that could look radically different. You know, think of an Eames chair versus, you know, what's the ghost chair, the Louis chair or something versus like a cafeteria chair versus like a chair in a classroom that has a desk attached or, you know, think of all the different things. And it would take us milliseconds to know like that's a chair. All of these different concepts I just mentioned in our brain are stored in a similar area. The neurons for these things, when we like do functional MRIs and watch parts of the brains light up are near each other, like literally spatially in our brains. And that appears to be happening in the databases and storage structures of these AIs, that they're storing lion and tiger and jaguar and cat near each other and sort of emergent taxonomies that are like the taxonomies that we might explicitly create. But again, 
they're not being explicitly trained on this. No one is telling them, here is the taxonomy of like all evolution of felines. <laughs> and here's the big ones, here's the little ones, here's the best, you know, it's just kind of figuring that out on its own. So that's actually the black box that I worry about more. And then just on the final thing, you know, you said, how do we eliminate bias and other things from these systems? Again, really good question. And especially given some of our experience, not just with technology, but with humanity over the past 2000 years, but let's call it even particularly like the past like 60, we should be thinking about this. But also I think a good way to think about it is not eliminating bias because we appear to not have been able to do that in any system, <laughs> including our own. Even the most enlightened human, people might pick that differently, but let's say the Dalai Lama or someone like that. Still, when we do brain measurements, we'll have differential reactions, including like how many milliseconds it takes to respond to things based on skin color and other things. So to me, it's not about eliminating the bias. Let's assume that that's an emergent property of just any sort of neural network learning system. But instead, having a step afterwards, which says, okay, this was maybe a biased response. Let me observe that and then do a second response based on that. Who cares, honestly, if the Dalai Lama or something like that responds to something in their brain in 75 milliseconds versus 90 milliseconds based on the color of their skin? Let's just assume that that happens and say, okay, well, what's the next thought? <laughs> the next thought, in my opinion, should be, that doesn't matter. I am now going to make a decision not based on that sort of built-in neural network response rate, but on some more enlightened principle or something that's derived from like a moral framework, believing as I do, you do, like that's those surface things don't matter. <laughs> that it's, you know, the depth of someone's character or their actions, which we should judge them for and respond to them based on. Or some other things, some person far smarter than me, some philosopher, some, you know, civil rights advocate has like taught us all that's what we want to make our decisions on. So really it's about taking these systems and not just responding in whatever the base layer responses are, but then building in levels above that that are essentially like, must like us have multiple levels of reasoning. The AIs can and do actually have multiple levels of reasoning where they check their own initial responses and then iterate based on it before they send a response. This is much like the sort of safeguards, quote unquote safeguards that are built into these systems to not send like, you know, angry or bad words to you. <laughs> maybe that's their initial response, but then they have something else, like another program that runs and says, oh, maybe I shouldn't curse out Aaron. <laughs> Let me then create a new response based on like, you know, something else, which is again, very similar to how our brains work and how humans work. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those areas that if we're going to be successful and avoid really, you know, some negative situations we can't even fathom just yet, we really need to think laterally and kind of adjacent topics, philosophy, political science, economics, all kinds of different things need to inform the way that we approach AI and how we integrate it into our technology, into our design philosophies, et cetera. Curious, like, what are you reading and how do you think about this, like bringing a broader view to what is to come? Again, the best metaphor here is that what we appear to have been able to do with this modern AI is replicate how the human brain learns or it's informed by how the human brain learns and works. And we're getting really cool results there, including from things computers are good at that humans are bad at, like reading the entire internet. 
<laughs> you know, like all of us could maybe hope to read, you know, call it 30 million words in our lifetime. And it can do that in a minute. <laughs> so it's just going to be able to answer certain queries or, or tie together certain concepts or knowledge better than we can. Now, there's certain things that we're way better at. And this is, uh, I forget the name of the paradox here, but there's basically something that says things we thought AI would be fast at, like driving a car, are actually taking way longer than even the experts in the field predicted. And things we thought it would take a long time, like creating illustrations <laughs> or like what we consider creative work, writing poetry, it's actually gotten really good at really quickly. By the way, a fun thing with ChatGPT, if you want to play with it, ask it to write a poem or ask it to write a haiku or a limerick. It's actually incredibly good at these. <laughs> and then as, once it writes a limerick, say like, hey, I don't like this rhyme. Could you change it? Or, you know, could you make it funnier? Or could you add a joke at the end? And just watch how it does that. It'll kind of blow your mind. I've done that with my kids and, and then had it actually read in the voice of Snoop Dogg via this Speechify <laughs> app. So you can like take it to another, another level too. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Polanyi Paradox, which is named for a British-Hungarian philosopher, is a theory that human knowledge of how the world functions and our own capabilities to a large extent beyond our explicit understanding. Another good concept to introduce here for your listeners is called the Lindy effect. The Lindy effect basically says that something that's lasted a long time is more likely to last a longer time. So let's talk about this with books. A book published last year has, I think, a low percentage likelihood of being read 100 or 1,000 years from now. Now, let's take a Stoic philosopher or a Greek philosopher or some of the plays that thousands of years later, we're still not just reading, but studying and saying there's something very special here. The works of Shakespeare, you know, think of art that's lasted the test of time. I could say, I would bet actually, that in a thousand years, we'll still be reading Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius because <laughs> there's something in the Lindy effect, it's lasted a long time, so it's likely to continue lasting and new things maybe have a lower likelihood. So in terms of what to read, and what I try to read is the works that have lasted a long time. And like we referenced Adam Smith earlier, <laughs> you know, in colleges, they still study Adam Smith. It's been three, 400 years, <laughs> 300 years, basically. And we're still studying it. So there's some good stuff there. So I think that you should kind of balance your reading if you can. And I'm not great at this because I also love Twitter and magazines and news, but like, if ideally I were designing my, my week or month, I would spend 60 to 80% of my time on old stuff, maybe new interpretations or new criticism of old stuff, but like really based on ideas and things that have stood the test of time and maybe like that 20% on new stuff, including Twitter, the news cycles. Like, again, ideally, I don't do this perfectly, but if I could design my life perfectly and I had perfect self-control, that's what I would do. <laughs> Matt, Automatic has been a remote company, one of the larger remote companies from, a, I believe, its very beginning. I've been in a division a number of years, and for a while we were you know, one of the bigger ones too. And then the pandemic happened, and this way of working shifted. And now it seems like a little bit of the pendulum is starting to swing the other way to some degree for some companies where they're asking people to come back. What's your current take on remote work, and what are some of the successes and failures associated with it? So my experience has been that working in a distributed fashion. I don't like the word remote because that implies essential and a remote. Distributed implies that every contributor is at equal footing. 
So I'll say working in a distributed fashion, you can create world-class products, experiences, companies, everything. That does not mean that everyone who works in distributed will do so, <laughs> nor does it mean that everyone who makes everyone go into the office every day is going to be more successful, right? It appears that there's a lot of other factors because <laughs> gosh, how many in-person companies or companies that force everyone to go into the office failed? Most of them, actually, that have ever been started have mostly failed. So again, like I think we need to be careful when people try to draw causal relationships from correlational data, which I think folks are doing. If I have to guess why some companies that worked in a distributed fashion are now asking people to come back, it's that many managers who have worked in a mostly in-office environment thus far feel more comfortable with their skills in that in-office environment or in their ability to monitor or control their employees. The past few years, I would say that the balance of power was firmly in the side of employees because the demand for talent far outstripped in technology areas, you know, great developers, great designers, the demand for those people far outstripped the supply. And so guess what? That means that the employees can dictate when and how they work and everything like that. I have experience and see that distributed work is way better as an employee. <laughs> you know, assuming that you're driven and still going to do a great job, like, gosh, being able to choose when and how and where you work. Yeah, who wouldn't choose that? <laughs> it's awesome. By the way, that also means that you could choose to be in an office. We don't tell people you can never go into an office. Tons of people go into coffee shops or co-working situations or anything. Maybe they really like that buzz of an office or something. Great, do that. We'll actually give you money to do that. <laughs> so you don't have to pay for it yourself. So again, we're not about a dogmatic way of saying one or the other is purely better. We're about putting the choice into the hands of the colleagues, my colleagues, like our employees at Automatic. <laughs> so it's not actually me saying distributed work is better. I think distributed as a default and giving choice to employees to do one way or better is way better for the employees. And I believe that what's better for employees ultimately leads to better outcomes for the company as a whole. So what's changed in the past year? Well, the economy's crashed. <laughs> Major tech companies are doing layoffs. I think there's been you know, over 100,000 layoffs and supply and demand has shifted. Now there's, I think, an over excess of incredible talent that is searching for an ever smaller number of jobs. This is now going to be exacerbated because of course technology companies are gonna be the first and earliest adopters of AI, which might take things that used to take, again, let's say that my developer has 3X productivity and my business is growing, let's say 50% per year. Before I used to have to hire, you know, between 50% and, and zero more people every year to keep up with that growth. If now someone's doing a 3X, I might not need to hire for a year or two, again, to meet my current customer demand in a high growth business. So if productivity is being multiplied, that changes. Now that means for people who I'm employing, their salaries probably go up quite a bit <laughs> because my revenue per employee, which I think is the biggest driver is compensation. Like ultimately, that's the only honest thing that drives compensation is going to go up quite a bit. And so naturally, through supply and demand, that is going to drive higher compensation per employee, which, by the way, for my current employees, that's great. For the thousands of people that might want to be hired by automatic, that's not great. 
<laughs> because all of a sudden there's going to be more competition for each job. There's going to be more kind of productivity for my existing folks and an economic environment, which is uncertain. So a lot of folks who previously were burning a lot of cash to grow their business are now trying to get the break even and profitable. So in that case, I guess that's a long way of saying that the balance of power shifts to employers. And so I think you're going to see some employee unfriendly moves from many businesses. We're obviously not going to do that because our our policies are trying to be driven not by what we can get away with, but what we think is by first principles, the right thing to do. As one example there, we pay similar salary ranges globally. So we don't care what state or country you're in. If you're doing the same work, we try to do the same pay. Again, this is a principle, which I think many companies follow locally, right? Like you'd be hard pressed to find a technology company in the US that would pay a man or woman differently (laughs) or pay someone who's from India differently from someone who's from America, right? (laughs) Not only do we have laws against that, it's morally odious. Like who would who would do that and feel good about themselves? Who could sleep at night? Yet there's a hypocrisy in that they would have policies to do that, you know, cost of living adjustments based on where you live. And morally, if you really think about it, why is it moral? Let's say I have two engineers that do the exact same work and create the exact same value for my customers. Why should I pay one differently for being in San Francisco and a different one for being paid in Ottawa? And the differences internationally were even further. So all of a sudden, like, let's say I have an engineer, again, doing this exact same work in Pakistan or Nigeria. Why should I pay them differently? Like, give me the moral argument to pay them differently. When I dug into it, at least in my personal exploration, the arguments there were all around basically what you can get away with (laughs) or two, local norms. (laughs) Oh, And then I'd find these amazing contorted things. Some of the people who have gotten most mad at me about this policy were actually entrepreneurs in other countries who would say, hey, these people, if you pay this engineer five times more than they would make locally, it's going to create issues with their family. They're going to be ostracized from their community or whatever. And like that actually might be true. By the way, you know, if you're super successful in America... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and all your family, you know, makes 50 grand a year and you make 500, guess what? That creates issues <laughs> and you have to navigate that. But as a company, is that my place to then morally have a decision to pay you less? <laughs> I don't think so. Like, I can't justify that. I can't find like a first principles moral argument for that. By the way, we didn't start this way. We used to pay people differently based in different countries. But it was like, I think around 2011, 2012, did this thought process <laughs> And really examined our own hypocrisy and said, wow, I don't think that's right. (laughs) And the change didn't happen overnight. We couldn't afford to change that overnight, you know, because our our kind of business model was built on our sort of our current cost of like employees and everything. So it took us probably a year or two to get everyone to similar ranges. That was a decision we had to make. And so I really encourage business leaders, actually every person listening to this, to sometimes examine your own beliefs because we're all huge hypocrites. <laughs> There's a lot of areas we've just never thought of. And we start with kind of a default set of behavior or beliefs based on what was done. And guess what? When Automatic started, and in fact, till today, what businesses do is pay different people based on where they live <laughs> or where they move to. And full credit, this was driven by some of our employees. 
who came to me and said, hey, I'm doing the same work as this other person. Why are you paying me less? And we had some default answers. And then they kept asking the question. And I really had to be like, wow, I think you're right. (laughs) I'm an idiot. I've been wrong. And so also just having some forgiveness and grace for yourself that hopefully there's beliefs that you and I might have today that 20 years from now, we might consider morally odious or wrong. And just knowing that, hey, we're all going to be wrong all the time. Humans are fallible. And let's just try to be heading towards correct and also not be too guilty or beat ourselves off about when we've been wrong. No, let's try to get to right. But you know what? We made the decisions based on the social mores of the time. And that was paying people differently based on their location. And once we realized that was probably not right, we tried to switch to the right thing as soon as possible. But in the same way, it's like, I don't believe in like super harsh judgments of looking at, you know, let's call it a Greek philosopher from 2000 years ago and judging them by today's morals. Like, yeah, let's let's look at that and, and inform that. But should I not read Plato anymore? <laughs> because, you know, they had slaves in their society or something like that. Like, yes, let me judge that by the same standards and say, I think they were wrong on that. But let me not ignore all of Plato's work and sort of look at it in conversation with today's society and what we know to be right today. We're racking things up by kind of bringing things back to the beginning. And I listen to a lot of jazz at home, but I'm, you know, kind of a, a newbie as far as like knowing what's great. I just kind of go back to the classics like Coltrane and Duke Ellington, and a lot of stuff from the 60s. Is there anything interesting in that space you're listening to right now or playing? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> First, I would say for you and everyone else listening to this, look up where there's live music in your locality and go there because you will not believe how much leaving five bucks in the bowl of a local musician changes their life. And also how you showing up to that restaurant on those days also causes them to hire more live musicians and things like that. So again, how's the system work? Support local musicians first and foremost. And also what's cool is they'll hang out. You can talk to them, become their friends, like hire them for your next party. You'd be shocked at like, if you're hosting something at your house, you can get some amazing musicians for your house for like 200 bucks. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow, I'm spending that much on booze. Maybe I could also spend that on having like a cool band in the corner. And that'll elevate your event like so much. So first, for local musicians and just find the cool local cats. Like, <laughs> Second, in terms of like answering your question, like what albums to buy or things, recent stuff that's good. I mentioned Robert Glasper earlier. His stuff is super accessible in that he's combined, if you like R&B or rap or anything like that, he basically combines super good jazz, like harmonics <laughs> and rhythm and stuff with essentially like modern day performers. Like, gosh, I think he has Erica Badu and like you know, folks like that. That's why he run the R&B album. He's a jazz musician, but he run the R&B Grammy. So that's, I think, cool stuff. So jazz has always been about fusion. There's a section of the community that says, like, we peaked in 1940 and, like, we should just copy that or 1960, like Miles Davis, John Coltrane. So, like, I think it's also cool to see the evolution. I consider that still jazz. Some people don't. But second, I would say Kamasi Washington, amazing tenure player. I see Aaron doing a thumbs up. Yeah. There's uh, one song in particular, uh, like, I would love to have played at my funeral, his version of Claire de Lune. I was just about to say that. It's amazing. I would check out that just that track, actually. Start with that. 
his album, he came out with a three CD album as his first album, which again, very controversial in the jazz world. And some of it's a little more intellectual or maybe hard to get into if you don't appreciate like all of jazz. But that Claire de Lune is incredible because it takes, again, a Lindy song, a song that stood the test of time now for hundreds of years. It turns out that Debussy, which uh, Claire de Lune means light of the moon, was actually based on a poem by Paul Verlaine. Check out the poem that inspired Debussy to compose the song. And now listen to the original, like listen to the classic version, and then listen to like Kamasi Washington's version from 2012, 2013 or something, version of it. It's a cool way to learn about music, the same way that you can study art by looking at the evolution, how artists evolve over time. What is it in Philadelphia, the Barnes Museum, I think? If anyone ever goes to Philadelphia, visit this museum. So cool for seeing how like a thousand year old or 2000 year old sculpture that we discovered in the Aztecs could inspire Picasso, you know, 2000 years later, which then inspires some other artists. Like watching how these things evolve, I think is how you learn. The same way that if you're like, want to learn about wine, you might do a horizontal tasting, right? Let me taste a wine from five different vineyards in a certain region, maybe in Napa or in Bordeaux or something, the same year, but different vineyards. Taste how those taste differently. That's a horizontal tasting. Then do a vertical tasting. Let's look at the exact same vineyard. So the exact same vines and look at one from different years. So that's called a vertical tasting. What you learn there will give you an appreciation for wine that's very different. In the same way, if you want to appreciate any art area more, figure out their equivalent of vertical and horizontal. <laughs> so maybe look at the top jazz albums from 2012 and see like what's the best that we thought was that year. And then look at the same artist. Like maybe look at like Kamasi Washington over the years and hear how he's evolved or Miles Davis, or like, you know, Coltrane, oh my goodness, his career, which by the way, he didn't really break out until like he was 32, 33, which is kind of cool, right? Because, well, I was in an arts high school. Gosh, there were so many prodigies, like folks who were like so good as like a high schooler. I was not that. I just had to work really hard to get the gigs. <laughs> I had to show up early. I had to memorize all the music. So I had to do like the stuff I could do because I was not the prodigy at all. And I think that's actually a good metaphor for business as well. Like just working harder and doing some work that's led to, I think, a lot of my success. Finally, I will say the musician that is blowing my mind the most. Again, it's hard to describe that this prodigy, this kid now a 20-something-year-old, is actually taking not just music, but music theory and creating entirely new types of chords and stuff that like a Herbie Hancock is like really respecting. There's this kid, well, I can't call him a kid anymore. <laughs> He's 20-something. Jacob Collier. Check out his albums. Check out as well. He posts YouTubes of him putting together certain songs. And he'll do this thing. Well, he'll actually take hundreds of tracks and compose them in like, a, I forget if it's Logic or I forget the software program he uses. But just watching him, I have no interest in doing that. But watching him work, and he has like these two-hour videos where he walks you through all the tracks, how he recorded things, everything is inspiring. You learn so much from that and his dedication to his craft. And then also just check out YouTube. Like there's lots of YouTubes of people analyzing some of his tracks, some of his solos. I'll give you another link you can share. This might only be good for like musicians in the audience, but there's basically this cool jazz musician also worth checking out called Corey Henry, pianist and an organist actually. He plays the 
the Hammond B3 really well. He posted like a one minute clip of him and Jacob Collier just doing the jam on C Jam Blues, which is basically like the most basic blues. It's like the first blues you learn as a jazz musician. And I think if you're a musician, this is mind blowing. Even if you're not, watch it from the point of view of how to appreciate the craft of these two musicians responding to each other in real time. That's my favorite thing about jazz, is when you see live jazz or a jazz performance, you might be hearing music that has never existed before and literally will never exist again, especially if it's not being recorded. That's special. That's valuable. (laughs) There's something about that that's pretty neat. So, you know, maybe appreciate improvisation and live music in a different way that encourages you to get out locally. Mm, I love it. Matt, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've had a lot of fun with these questions, so thank you. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetter.com slash podcast. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.